0: We start this new series, uh, it's, it's a whole new series about uh, building a community of grace. And so why this series now? We're going to be going through the book of Ephesians. Uh, why we study this series now? Well, we spent six weeks talking about our shape. How did God design you, right, as an individual? How did he shape you for ministry? But here's a cool thing about, we find in scripture, that you were never designed to be on your own. In the Bible, it talks about family, right? As far as like how the faith is. We, we're talked about as brothers and sisters more than anything else in Scripture. Christians are called brothers and sisters, right? We have Father God, we have all this. It's, it's family. Family means relationship. I don't know if you've noticed that, but it does. It means that we get together. In the Bible, when it talks about how God makes us. It also talks about that we are a body, Right. And think about your body. It's a bunch of little different organs that are all connected in the right way, doing the right thing. That's a healthy body. Right. A body that has things all disconnected is not so healthy. Right. And so we were talked about God did shape you. You are some part of the body. He shaped you perfectly to do what he wants you to do. But in order to do what God wants you to do, you have to be together in this community in the body of Christ as part of the family of God. And so here's a book in Scripture that really talks about that. How do we come together? How do we build this community of grace? Now that we know where you're at, how does it all fit together? And that's what we'll be doing these next couple weeks. Now, I have a brand-new toy because, as you noticed last week, my iPad was being a stinker. And so we'll see if this works. Uh, If it doesn't, well, I'm sorry. It's technology. So uh, we want to get into God's Word. And uh, the very first thing is going to be a Bible memory verse. Uh Uh-huh. The Bible Memory Verse, Ephesians 1 3 is going to be our by every week. Uh, we're going to be memorizing a passage in Ephesians that kind of summarizes kind of the topic or, um, of about what what God is talking about in Scripture right there. And today, we're talking about Ephesians 1, 3, and it says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, just on the surface, that's pretty good news. we got blessings, things like this, every spiritual blessing. But the problem is, oftentimes, we look at that and we think, Oh, yeah, every spiritual blessing, what does that mean? We're going to talk about that today. Paul explains that, but I want to give you this. This is the framework, and this is a passage that's going to be very important to hold with us as we begin to build our, our, our faith on this. So let's talk about Ephesians. I love new series. Don't you love new series? You get a Bible. You're going to need a Bible for this. So if you didn't bring a Bible, you can please uh, use one of ours. We have a bunch of them in the back. If you don't have a Bible or you need one that's written in more modern English or whatever, please just take one of ours. It's our gift to you. Um, but, and we've got a lot more than that are in the bookshelves back there. So anyway, you want to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. If you're using one of our Bibles, that's going to be on page 815. And while you're turning there, let me tell you a little about this book. Okay. We always like context. What's happening here? This book was written by the Apostle Paul. Okay. So great uh, apostle to the Gentiles, all this kind of stuff. He wrote this around the year eighty sixty, and uh, So this is near the end of his ministry, okay. um, and, which is pretty neat. He, was, he wrote this while he was in prison. And uh, it was under house arrest, actually, while he was up in Rome, okay? And he wrote this along with several other called the prison epistles, which are more letters. He wrote Colossians, Philippians, Philemon up there, and, of course, Ephesians. So he writes all these together. While he's up there, if you want to read how he got to this house arrest, read Acts. Acts uh, chapter 20, I think, is where it's at, where it kind of tells the story of, of what happened, how did Paul end up under house arrest for a couple of years up in Rome. But he's up there, and he's waiting to see Nero, which things may not go well for him, right? Because he wasn't a real cheerleader for faith. And, uh, and so Paul writes this letter to this church at Ephesus. Now, if you have one of our Bibles, it's going to give you a little beginning thing uh, here where it kind of talks about the background of the book, and it says, uh, traditionally named Ephesians may not have actually been written to the churches at Ephesus. And it caused me to kind of wonder, as I was doing my study for this, and I had quite a bit of time to do this, uh, so I say, why, why would they believe that? Well, some of the earlier documents don't have the words Ephesians actually in there to the brothers and sisters in the church of Ephesus. However, most of the early church fathers, which you call the, um, uh, the, the well, the early church fathers, the, um, before um, before the Council of Nicaea and all this kind of stuff, uh, like the first couple hundred years of the church, when they write about Ephesians, they actually believe that it was written to the church at Ephesus. So tradition, as well as we do have some other ancient documents that talk about the church of Ephesus, chances are this was written to the Ephesian church. Does it matter? Not really. But just, it's fun for people who like Bible stuff. Okay, so, if this was to the church at Ephesus, which I believe it was, Let's talk about the Ephesian church. What, what was happening in Ephesus? Where was Ephesus? Well, it's on the Grecian Peninsula, about halfway up, and it's, it's close to a couple of rivers that kind of bring you inland, and it has a port there that uh, was a very important port um, because it was kind of an entryway into not just Greece, but also into Asia Minor. You can get a, a lot of uh, goods and supplies there, so it was a very important City or center for commerce. Not only is it an important center for commerce, but because the Romans liked money and power, it was a, also a very important uh, political hub. So the uh, the Romans had Colosseum there. They had all kinds of important things there. It was become a very important place for the Romans, which means that there was also a large military presence and things like this. The Romans had. Really good navy and all that kind of stuff. So, you have this as an important political center. So, it's an economic center and political center. And well, if that wasn't enough, they also had in Ephesus this massive uh, this place f- um, to worship this temple for this goddess Diana, which is a horrible name for a goddess, by the way, but people weren't, didn't ask me back then. And so, you have this goddess Diana, and it was one of the seven major wonders of the world. It was a big deal, it was a huge cultural center and people come from all over to go to this temple and to worship goddess Diana, and it became a tourist place, a destination, and we know something about that, don't we, right? So people come from all over, and they had all their little trinkets that they would sell. You know, they didn't have T-shirt imprinting, so what did they do? They, they imprinted little little idols of Diana, and so then they would sell those to the people as their souvenir for their trip there. And what happened is, is on the second missionary journey, Paul goes up to Ephesus, and he stays there, and, and uh, he starts to teach people about Jesus. He goes to synagogue first, and then he goes out into the streets and all this kind of stuff, and so many people come to Jesus that it actually impacts the local economy, so many people were there, and, they, and remember, this was an economic and a social hub. People were coming and hearing about the gospel, and then they were going back to their own homes, right, and planting the churches there. It was a powerful place, right? And you have trade people that were in charge of trade that were coming there. Sailors and stuff were finding Jesus and then bringing the gospel all the way over, all over Rome. This was a powerful place. It was a light that was just shining. But so many people in Ephesus were coming to Jesus that, that, they, that they said, you know what, we renounce this, this pagan worship. And we're not going to buy these idols anymore and these little you know, little cups and saucers and t-shirts that say, you know, I saw Diana. They're not doing it. And what happened was is that the merchants were finding out. This, they are like, why are our sales down? And they found out all these people are coming to faith in Jesus, and now they're not buying our stuff. We've got to put an end to it. So they started a riot. That's how the church began in Ephesus. What a cool city. Think about that. That is a dynamic church. That is the power of the gospel to transform things. Well, the church doesn't just grow. It just survives this whole debacle, all that kind of stuff. and And it begins growing, and then on his second missionary journey, Paul comes back to Ephesus, and he stays there for a couple years. The thing was is that there was a lot of people that were in Ephesus that they didn't grow up with the Jewish tradition. They had no idea what a Messiah really was. They just said, Jesus is the Messiah. are like, great, but they didn't have the Old Testament. They had no idea of this. And Paul goes back and he teaches them who Jesus is and God's plan, and they're part of that plan and all this. And can you imagine how the Apostle Paul come and hang out with us for two years? How cool would that be? Well, you know, when you live with someone for a couple years, you kind of get to know them. And you, you might even start to like them. And I think that's what happened with Paul, is he was there, and he got to meet with these folks, and he begins to care for them, and they see his heart, and he begins to know them personally, and he becomes interested in what's happening over there. And now here he is in prison, decades later, chances are he's not going to get out, and he writes a letter to his dearly beloved friends, in a powerful city, a city that because of, of Ephesus, I mean, they sent all kinds of missionaries into Asia and, and all kinds of stuff. It was a powerful city, and to people that he loved. And he writes to them, what does it mean to be part of the church? What is, it, what is the church supposed to be? What's it supposed to look like? That's what he writes. And it was through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, right, that God directs this letter. And, and so there are some amazing eternal truths that are here for us, powerful things. And the the book of Ephesians is really divided up into two major sections. How Paul writes it, his first argument is this. It's everything that God has done for us. That's what he begins with. Right? What have we received from God? Some people call that our calling, right? What has God done for us? First three chapters. And then, after that, he writes about now because of what God has done for us, this is what we ought to do for God, which is an important thing. Now, I, I, both are, are crucial for the church, but they have to be balanced. You need both together. My wife and I, when we were first married, uh, were part of a religious-y, horrible sect-type thing. They were too holy to go to church. They were that, that's how holy they were. <laughs> they were all about the second half of the letter. It was all about the rules and the law and all those kinds of things, right? And here was the thing with that, is it was It was doing all the right stuff without a good reason. And because we didn't have the grace, we didn't have what God had done for us first, there was no power in, to, in order to live that way. And so all of these rules and these laws and all these things that God has given us to, to free us became a burden. It became the crushing for our faith. It's important that we have a foundation. However, we've also seen in my ministry and, and time I've, I've seen... Very sad where there's churches that are built on just the first part of Ephesians. It's all just about the grace. This is what God has done for us. It's wonderful. And then they stop there. And there is no living this life that God gave us. There, there is no next step. It's all about what has he done that's fantastic. God has given me grace. Now I can do whatever I want. And believers live these very small, insignificant, burden-filled, guilt-filled wasted lives. Lives that everyone else in the culture points to and says that is exactly why I don't want to be associated with Jesus. We need both. We talk about being disciples of Jesus that build disciples of Jesus, right? It's not just something we say, it's who we are. It's in our DNA. It's about living up to the calling which Christ gave us. Well, Ephesians tells us there's a balance to this and we have to begin with what God has done for us. And that needs to propel us to live the life that God has given us to live. That's how it's balanced. And so these first two weeks, we're going to talk about what has God done for us. And these are really fun things. So I hope you have your Bibles. If I didn't spend long enough for you to find Ephesians, meet with me afterwards. I'll help you find it. Okay, so then we have Ephesians. You know, come on. Ah, toys. Right? Thank you, James. Jeff. Okay, so here we go. The first thing that he talks about is he begins with our possessions in Christ. This is what Paul begins with us with. This is what we have in Christ. And it's important for us to know what we have. And it's not just in Jesus. This is because of Christ. This is what we have through God, like what God has given us. And so he gives us the whole trinity. What has God blessed us with in Jesus? And so he starts with um, the Father. And if we go back one, because I pushed the button too far. There we go. First thing that we have is... Verse 3 is our election. It says, praise, actually, you go to verse 1 because it's fun. I like how letters begin. And you always wonder, like, are these written by real people? Look at this. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Look how he starts this. Didn't the Romans start letters way better than us? Like, I, when I get a letter from somebody, I always go to the very bottom and figure out who's talking because that makes a difference as to how I'm going to interpret what they have to say. Right? They start out, they're just like straight up. And look how he says, Paul, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. His, he goes with his identity. This is why he, he can write. And it wasn't just that he's an apostle, but it's by the will of God. Paul isn't just writing because he just woke up one day and said, I want to have authority and tell you how to live your life. God knocked him off his donkey or maybe a horse. We don't know, right? God knocked him off some kind of four-footed animal. He was going up to Damascus and, and said, you're going to be my servant <laughs> and this is what you're going to do. And he writes with that, changed his life. And the testimony, how his life was altered shows that he was telling the truth. And he says, listen, I'm writing to you because of that. I've been called to this. And he writes to them, and look at who he addresses it to, to God's holy people in Ephesus. Now, is this to everybody in Ephesus? No. It's to the holy people. Who are they? Believers. Do you know another word for the holy people, what, what that says, what that actually is? Saint saints to the saints that are there now i grew up catholic so saint was a big deal right and it still is in fact it's a bigger deal than i ever understood before he says to the holy ones to the ones that are called out to the ones that are different this is what this letter is is to you christian now these were people who were still living and he calls them saints but they were people like you and me you see there is something that God has given us. He's even given us in his title. Or it's like he's saying, you are holy. You are holy. Already, it's not that you might be holy someday. You are holy. God has made you holy. You are a saint, right? Just put it on your business card, right? It's like, Saint Aaron, right? That little placard in front of your office. You're like, Aaron Dorman, saint, right? On the side of your truck. People want to know, who are you? I'm a saint, Straight up, who told you? God told me I'm a saint in his word, right? Did you earn it? No, I don't know all of you, but those of you who I do know, I know, (laughs) right? And those of you who know me are like, "Uh uh-uh, this is a gift. Our very identity, our position is who we are right there is a gift from God. Right, That's part of the heavenly riches. And he hasn't even gotten into telling us what God has given us. <gasps> so cool. So then it says, but though they're faithful in Jesus Christ. Saints are faithful. There is something about being called that calls us to God. And now he gives us the things that he's given us. The first thing he gives us is election. This is something that Christians love to argue about. What is election? Did God new or did we get to choose? Yes. Aren't you glad that God's bigger than your brain? <laughs> but there is something in Election. It says, praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be, his, to be holy and blameless in his sight. He chose you. God chose you. Now, I'm not going to argue Calvinism, Arminianism. I mean, I know that there are very smart people on both sides that are faithful and all this. This is what I know. In this right here, there is an active choosing of God. For you before the world began I mean that's planning but get this choosing and why it's important have you remember when you were a kid and you were on the playground and everybody lined up in a big circle and you're going to play some kind of game you know and you have like jack captain and jill captain they're standing on two sides or whatever and they're calling names out as to who's going to be on which team what did you want to be chosen right you didn't want to be the one kid that was left they were like yeah I guess we have to take him Right? Nobody wanted to be that kid. We all wanted to be wanted. Now, not only do we want to be wanted, but if we're being honest with ourselves, we wanted to be wanted by the right team, didn't we? Right? Because you knew as they started to pick, this person's got good judgment and that person should never, ever work like in the draft. Right? <laughs> and so you're just hoping, I want to be chosen, but I want to be chosen to the team. Here's a cool thing. God chose you for his team before there were even teams. He chose you actively, purposefully. You are not a mistake. And it's not as though he's like, well, I guess I'll let you part of my kingdom. It's not the way that God works. And I think a lot of us think in our life that I'm a Christian, but if God could really choose, he probably wouldn't have picked me, right? But he had to pick me because he had to be fair, and so it's open to everyone, so I got in under a technicality. That's not the way it works. God picked you. God the Father chose you from the very beginning, not as an afterthought. But from the very beginning, he picked you. You're not here by accident. You're here on purpose. And because of that, you have purpose. The second thing we find in there is, is an amazing thing. He didn't just pick us, but he adopted us. Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Now, we all understand the idea of adoption. You take somebody who's not part of the family, and then you say you're part of the family. That's mostly true, except for in the, in the Roman world, adoption more often, it carried that context, but also had this idea, it was also used in this. You are uh, the, the head of a family. You might have a vast amount of wealth, and you have children that are part of the family, and though they are wealthy because they're your children, they don't get to control any of that wealth, right? They're juniors, but once they become adults, and now imparted upon them are all the legal rights and responsibilities of adulthood, now they are legal heirs of everything that you own. That is called adoption. It's when a father says to his son or daughter, you are now an adult, you now own these things as well. Get this, you are not just God's stepchildren. Right? You are full heirs. In fact, Scripture says you are co-heirs with Christ, and that makes us nervous, doesn't it? Like it does. And you even say it. You're like, that can't be right. But God says "That's what he's done for us. What a gift. What a gift. And not only has he adopted us, but then the next thing it tells us in verse, uh, let's see, verse 6. I'm reading my notes. It says that he has accepted us. He says, to the praise of his glorious grace to which he has freely given us and the one he loves. Look at that freely given. God's not holding out. It's not like he was like, I guess I have to give this to you because if I wanted to save him, in order to save him, I had to be fair because I'm righteous. And so I'll give to you with kind of a clenched fist all of these gifts. God doesn't have a clenched fist towards you. There's a wonderful parable in Scripture, I think, that talks about this this acceptance that God gives. And it's it's the story of the prodigal son one who squandered the, the wealth and, and, and put the, ran the family's name through the mud and all this kind of stuff, and when he comes home, does he receive a, a clenched fist? No, but an open embrace. He gets the ring. He gets the coat. He gets the sandals. He gets the party. God accepts you. He wants you. That's huge for me. Ah, it's a motivation in my life to know that this God isn't just begrudgingly allowing me to kind of tag on to his work. But he picked me. He chose me. He's, given me. he's given me this adoption. He's saying, all these things, yours. And he says, I want you here. I accept you freely. I give this to you. Not under compulsion or anything like that. He just loves us. That's some spiritual wealth but that is not all he's given us because I think that Bible memory verse we had, he says every spiritual blessing in Christ and I think there are more spiritual blessings to be had. Aren't you glad? So what else does he do? Let's see if I can get it. Mm -mm, Nope, just hit that thing again. Thank you. The next thing he has is from the sun. In fact, I'm just going to set this down because I'm going to work on it next week. (laughs) Go back. (laughs) Okay, here we have, he's given us in Christ Jesus Redemption. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood for the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Redemption. Now, we all have the concept of redemption. We've, some of us have used coupons or something like that or have done like Groupon or whatever and you redeem the deal, right? It's worthless until you actually go and then all of a sudden it has value because you use it, right? That's not fully the concept, Okay. The concept that we have is in Rome, if you flip the coin, right, there's about 50% chance it's going to be heads or tails or whatever, right, that's about the odds that you would have being a slave in that society, right? it was bad, right, it was a lot of slaves, right, and so here's, here's the deal, everyone was at least accustomed to what slavery was because you saw it in your daily life. Redemption was this, if you are a slave and somebody then goes and they pays your price, they buy you and they set you free, that's redemption, Okay, so put yourself in a slave's shoe. You're a slave. You can't do anything on your own, right? You can't save money. You can't own property. You can't go and and do what you feel like you were called to in life. You're a slave. You were owned by someone else. And if you went to a judge, you say, I don't want to clean this person's toilet. The judge would say, too bad. You're a slave. You have to do it, right? Or else you die. There are no choices. You're a slave. That is a pretty dark place to be. And then some guy comes over and says, You. I choose you. I want to pay the price for you. And goes to the person that owns you and says, what's the price? And they say, all right, this is it. And he pays the price for you. And now you're owned by a different person, except for this person says, you know what? I bought you so you can be free. Now you are a free person. Here are your papers, right? Take them to the court. You're now free. You have been redeemed. How awesome would that be? What if your old master came up to you and said, my toilets are dirty, you should clean them? You know what you could tell him? (laughs) You could say, clean them your own, right? (laughs) Of course that's what you're thinking. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't have to do that. And you would be under no compulsion. You could if you wanted to because you're free. And if that old master took you to court and said, this person should be cleaning my toilets, you know what? the judge would say to your old master, too bad, they're free. You have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. It says very clearly in scripture that you were a slave to sin and to selfishness and to despair and to destruction. And there was nothing you could do about it. A slave. And Jesus paid the price and set you free. Think about this. You are now free in God to live the life that he called you to. You have been redeemed. What a gift. And if that wasn't enough in this redemption that we have, look at the next thing. It says that we're not just redeemed, but we're forgiven. It says we, through the redemption of his blood for the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is a powerful thing. It's, it's not the same thing as redemption. Let me give you a story that illustrates this very clearly. When I was 16 years old, I was one of the oldest kids in my class because my parents were smart. And uh, so I come in there, and I get my driver's license, and I save up for two years, and I've got a, a pile of cash, and I'm thinking, what am I going to do with this? I'm going to buy a car because clearly that's what you want to do. And so I was stupid, and I bought a Volkswagen Beetle and I paid $700 for that car and I loved that car for about seven days till it caught fire <laughs> and the engine was totally wasted and so then I had to rebuild the engine at great expense and I learned then that I was never meant to be a mechanic <laughs> but I built the engine and then over the course of the next couple, of seven months it caught fire six more times so it was my car of sevens I hated that car But regardless, after the first fire, I rebuild the engine. Now I've got a lot of money into this thing, right? Now this is my car and I'm stuck with it because I spent most of my money rebuilding an engine and expect I'd have to. So it's my car. I'm one of the only guys in my class that can drive. And back then we could leave at lunchtime and we could go to to Taco Bell because that's, of course, where you would go because it's pretty cool. And so one of my buddies says to me, hey, let's go to Taco Bell because it's lunchtime. And I said, no, for whatever reason. I was being a stinker that day and I said, I want to go to Taco Bell, right? They're like, well, I want to go to Taco Bell. I said, well, fine. I, you find your own way. So, said, well, I don't have a car. Can I use yours? And I said, no. So, said, well, if I give you $5, I said done. <laughs> <laughs> right? And a taco. I got a taco out of the deal, too. So I give him my car, my car keys, and he gives me five bucks and comes back later and gives me the taco and all that kind of stuff, and I feel life is good. Comes back, gives me my keys back, and then we have football practice. After football practice, I go out, put my stuff in my car, and I notice that something's weird in my front left bar, uh, hub, like at the fender. It was, it was all dinged up badly. And I was furious. Not that my car looked nice, but if it's <laughs> going to mess up, it's me that's going to mess it up, right? And so I was so mad. I was like, what did you do to my car? Right? Why didn't you tell me? Well, he didn't have his license, for starters. He wasn't going to stop. But um, you know those, they have those little posts that are made of concrete that are supposed to keep your car from going somewhere? Well, they work. <laughs> and <laughs> If you're not used to a stick, you might just happen to run into one of those, and it might mess up your fender. So, um, so here's a friend, and so he, you know, he was like, I don't know what to do. So we went down to that Alder Salvage place down on Highway 34, and we ended up getting a new fender and put it on there, and it actually looked better than the original one. And he bought it, and he redeemed the situation, right? He paid for that. But I never really forgave him, because even after that, I would let other people drive my car, but not him. Right? was like, you can drive my car, you can drive my car, you can No. <laughs> right? Forever, <laughs> right? That's the difference. Forgiveness is an amazing thing. I think a lot of us feel like God has redeemed us, but maybe not fully forgiven us. Like somehow we're going to get to heaven, and from his my amazing throne up in heaven, God's going to look at us with this, those piercing eyes, right? That that With that wonderful fatherly disappointment, right? I know what you did. You're here because I, I let you here, but it's just because I'm so good, not because of you, and I I know what you've done. That's kind of what we think God might be looking at us. A lot of people feel that way. What this is telling us is that in Christ we have been forgiven. The Bible talks about forgiveness. It says that God actually takes our sins and removes them from us as far as the east is from west. And I don't know much about geography, but I knew something about globes. And east and west are pretty far apart. Here's the thing. It says other times he like buries them in the bottom part of the ocean. It says other times he absolutely forgets them. God can do things that you can't do. You can't forget, but God does. He forgives your sins. When he sees you, he no longer sees the sinner, but sees the righteousness of Christ. That's what it says. We put him on. That is forgiveness. It is hard for us to receive that gift, but it is a gift that God gives there is no separation between you and God. And the Bible, called this, it calls it propitiation, which is a horrible word because it's hard to say and most people have no idea what it means, but it says that fist of God's wrath didn't land on you. It was turned away and landed on Jesus so that you could receive his smile of fellowship. He's not angry with you. He's not disappointed in you. God loves you. You have been forgiven. Is that a spiritual blessing? Yeah. And if that wasn't enough in Christ, he goes on. He says this, he does, He lavished on us those things. He says, with all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure. God wants you to know about We call that revelation. God has revealed to you what he has done. It's like this. Have you ever bought somebody a present, maybe like Christmas or something, and you just couldn't wait to give it to them, but it's all wrapped up and they have no idea what they have? And you're like, oh, they got the treasure for you. <laughs> and then like, You want them to know what it is. You have this with that anticipation with that joy. I want you to know. Because until they open the present, they don't enjoy it. They have no idea. Now, it is theirs before they open it, isn't it? Got their name under the tree right there. It is theirs. It is their legal property. But they don't know what it is. And so there's no joy and there's no power. They don't get to to use it. See, God gave us amazing gifts in Christ. He's like, I want you to know what they are. And so he's revealed his will to us. That's what we have in the Bible. God took a lot of of steps to make sure that we would have a pure understanding of what he had to say. Picks the right people at the right time in history to say the perfect things, the exact right things, and has them preserved perfectly for us so we will know exactly who wrote them and why and what they said didn't just come from them but came from God. The Bible is an amazing thing, and God in the Bible shows us a story of redemption and of peace and of grace. God wants you to know what is yours. When we read Scripture, it is not a weight, it is a joy. It is unwrapping a gift. He has revealed to us something amazing, and that is God's desire. That's why the Bible, you know the language it was written in, the common language of the people, every time. He wants you to know what He has for you. God is not hiding, and He's not holding out. What a gift. And now if that wasn't enough, we go on and and it says that uh, in Christ that we have been chosen. It says in verse 11, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity to the purpose of his will, in order that we who were first to put our hope in Christ might also be for the praise of his glory. Now that word chosen there, you'll notice there's a little tiny E next to it in most Bibles. And if you go down into your notes, you'll notice that E says that we were made heirs. It caught my attention as I was studying this. And I said, why would that seem very different, chosen and made heirs? Well, in the scripture, there's an opportunity for that to go kind of either way. Different manuscripts have different things. But the early church fathers really talk about this. And when they go to it, predictably, sometimes they talk about this passage as showing that we were made heirs of Christ. Which makes that interesting because at the end of it, did you notice that it says that that we were made heirs for His glory, that He finds uh, value in us, so we are His heirs. At the same time, uh, He also considers us to be His treasure. How cool! There's like this poetic thing happening in there because our God is a poetic and a beautiful God. But in this, it means this: He's given us value. He's given us value by the things we've received from him, but he's also giving us value intrinsically by who he's making us. You are valued because you are valuable, because God made you valuable. What a gift. Not only that, then we see from the spirit. See God, the father gives us great things, the son gives us great things, and then the spirit also comes in, and, and we get things from the spirit. And in verse, uh, what, 17. Uh, says, I keep asking, oh wait, should you, did go, nope, there we go, verse 17. <clears throat> I have uh, not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, get this, so that you may know him better. God wants us to know him, and he goes through great things so that we can be known by him. But if that wasn't enough, let's back up a few things. What does this spirit do for us so we can know him better? Verse 13, it says you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of the gospel of salvation. When you first believed, you were marked in him with the seal and the promise of the Holy Spirit who is a deposit of guaranteeing your inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Get this, you were sealed in God. What does that mean? Would you ever buy Pickles? I love pickles, right? I love them. And so here's the most important thing. When you buy pickles, you look at the brand because it matters, right? Because not all pickles are the same. But you find the brand. And the next most important thing, and when you pick it out, is you make sure that, that the top doesn't click. Because if the top clicks, it means the seal's broken. It means everything inside of it's nasty and is gonna kill you and no one wants to have death by pickle. <laughs> right? So you find that pickle and you say, oh, it's been sealed. And a good seal is going to hold. And a good seal, because it holds, preserves what's inside. It makes sure that everything in there is kept fresh, perfect. And sometimes those seals are so powerful, you bring them home and it's hard to break that seal, isn't it? You're like, right? (laughs) That's right. You crash the jar. Sometimes the seal won't break. You know what? God has sealed you with something more impenetrable than a wax ring he sealed you with himself that's pretty strong what's strong enough to break god nothing you are sealed well and that seal preserves you doesn't it it guarantees what's inside is kept fresh that's pretty cool i mean this world is a pretty big giant they're going to try to crack that seal open. Too bad, because the world isn't stronger than God. So it can do all it wants, but it's not going to crack it. You know what the devil? He's pretty strong. He's a pretty buff, and bad dude, right? But he can't crack that jar, because the seal is God. You may want to crack that seal, but I'm sorry you're not strong enough. You have been sealed by God. Isn't that great? And it wasn't just that he sealed you, it was is that it says it's a down payment. There's a deposit to this. It's proof that what's kept inside is fresh. How do we do that? Well, God also comes into our life. It's not as though the Holy Spirit is just kind of floats around kind of nebulously through all things. It says he, after Pentecost, something amazing happens as God comes in and indwells us, which is weird. Like I share this space with the eternal, infinite God. Not just this space, but I share me with him. Which means no matter where I go or what I do, God is there. Not just kind of present, but fully there in me. In you. That's a down payment. That's when Jesus says, I'm never going to leave you nor forsake you. He's not. Like quite literally, wherever you go, there he is. There's God. And the benefit of this it's like, we're not going to be along the street and the devil's not going like, to kidnap you, right? And you're like walking along, huh? Oh, I'm the other guy, whatever. And all of a sudden he like snatches you away. He's like, ha, 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 he got you, right? Because God is there and he's like, lay off my kid. I'm here. None of us get snatched. We are guaranteed, right? And, and there's a high price that was paid. What's more valuable than God? Nothing. So nothing's going to come along that's going to say, all right, I'm going to pay a higher deposit and I'm going to purchase you back into wickedness. God has guaranteed us, the Holy Spirit guarantees us, seals us. What a gift. Doesn't that gift allow us to live this life with a little less fear, especially of wicked things, of brokenness, of ourselves? What a great gift. Those are the heavenly blessings that we have received, every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, does that passage mean a little bit more? So what do we do in this? Well, that goes to the next thing. Let's go to that next slide because I'm just giving up on this right now. I'll tell you what. There's a prayer that happens. That's what happens. There's a prayer that we have in Christ. In Ephesians, there are two prayers. The first one is a prayer for enlightenment. The second prayer is enablement. The first prayer says that you might know. The second prayer, which comes in chapter 3, says that you might be, right? That you're going to do these things. Knowing who we are precedes what being able to do what God calls us to do. But we need to know who we are, which is why Paul, after this great illustration of what God has done for us, then stops and says, let's pray in a letter, which is so cool. Because we can know these things right here, can't we? But oftentimes, they're not real here. And if they're not real in our heart and our life, then they don't make a whole lot of difference to us. Great theology, without it being saturated into our very life, does us very little good. And the only way to crack this from this is we need God's help. And so that's why he prays. And he does pray for us. And uh, so here's what he prays for us in the spirit. In verse 17, that we're going to have wisdom. He says, um, so uh, I keep, verse 17, I keep asking the God and Father of our Lord Jesus in Christ." The glorious Father, he may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation that you might know him better. God doesn't just want you to know about him. You can come to church and learn a lot about God. You can go to a Bible study and learn a lot about God. You can go to a Bible college and learn a lot about God. God doesn't just want you to know about him, he wants you to know him. Think how amazing that is. This is God of the universe. (laughs) But it's the God who chose you, it's the God who redeemed you, right? It's the God who's forgiven you, who has called you, who has made you valuable who sealed you It protects you, this God wants to be a real part of your life. He wants to know you and he wants you to know him intimately, deeply. And so there has to be a change of the heart because God is there. In fact, in Revelation, it says that God's standing at the door of our hearts and he's knocking and he says, anybody who, who answers, he's gonna come in. But how hard is it for us to unlock that door? Sometimes we don't even know where the lock is. Sometimes we just need God to help us. So he prays that we would know him. Not only that, to have that wisdom, but also the next thing he prays for is hope. Verse 18, I pray that in order that you may know the hope to which God has called you. This world is a dark place, right? Look at the news. A lot of people are freaking out right now because we've got election things and we've got disasters that are happening and the world seems to be falling into chaos. Well, duh. But who was the God who brought order out of chaos in the very beginning? It's the same God who brings order in our life no matter what the chaos is. There is hope in our God, and it's not like a wishful thinking kind of hope, like pie in the sky someday, Jesus will kind of come back. No, God is a very real God, and the hope is is an absolute assurance is an absolute assurance of what he's done is coming to fulfillment. It was like this. When I was in college and high school, I would run this horrible race, the 400, right? It was an awful race. I hated it. And I would run that thing, and I would want to die the whole time. I'm like, I hate this race. Why am I doing this? The entire time I'm going around the track, right? But the only reason that I would complete this and, and not fall down and feign my own illness or whatever so they'd carry me off the track is, is because I knew once I crossed that finish line, there was glory. I wanted the medal, Right? And the only way to get the medal was to run the stupid race. So I was gonna run the stupid race. Right? And it hurt and it was bad. And every step where I was like, I wanna die. I wanna die, 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 I wanna die. Hey, look, there's a finish line. I'm gonna die, I wanna die, I wanna die, I wanna die. Finished! Right? That is our life. It is hard and it is painful, but there is a finish line and we know it. And we're going to get there. And when we get there, it's a crown of glory. And it's going to be so darn real. It's going to make us think about that race. And we're like, it was miserable. But we did it. And the misery of the race makes the glory that much better. That's in you and me. The hope to which he has called us. We need to know what we have so we can finish this well. We can know, okay, yeah, I'm going to die someday. I'm going to go to heaven, blah, blah, blah. That does nothing for the Christian. To know that we have been called and it's coming does everything for the Christian. Pray that God shows you that, opens your eyes to what he has before you. Not only that, this enlightenment that he says is not just a hope that he has called you, but get this to the riches of his glorious inheritance and in his people. God wants you to know about your riches. Why? So you can be arrogant? Not likely. God wants you to know his riches because riches give us power, don't they? You talk to a poor person, they want to do things with their life, but they can't because they don't have the money, all right? They would do all kinds of stuff, but they are powerless to do it. There are a lot of Christians that are walking around that want to do great things for God, want to live a life that's filled with grace and hope and to do these big things that God has called us to, but they are, live under this lie that they are spiritually impoverished, and that is so not True. You have received every spiritual blessing heavily through Christ, every one of them. You are not impoverished in the slightest. You are so wealthy, you have no concept to, to put that framework in. But I'll tell you this, it's enough. It's more than enough. You have more than enough grace to make it through today. You have more than enough grace to make it through eternity. You are incredibly wealthy, and we need to know that. And we can understand it in our heads but it does us very little good until we trust it and know it in our life. So he says, he prays for the enablement in our life, the enlightenment, that we would know what God has done for us so that we can then use that wealth for what he called us to use it for. I think that's awesome. And the last thing he asked for in this thing is verse 19, is that we would know and understand God's great power in this. It says in verse 19, "And, and his incomparably great power for those of us who believe. Think about that. Great power. Is it you that's going to change this world? No, it's not. Billions of people have come and died, and we really don't care most about them, right? Kids learn about people in history and like, curse their names because they have to memorize them, right? We don't change the world. God does. God changes the world, and he's powerful enough to do it. We need to know his power, not just out there, but in our own lives today, right? Can you change you? Probably not, but God can. That's what he does. He takes dead people and makes them alive. He takes broken people and he heals them. In fact, he takes the brokenness and he uses it for power. That's what God does. God can do what we cannot do, and you need to know his power in your life. This is not some game that we play, coming here on Sunday and singing songs to a wall, right? There is a real God who does real things in our life today. He changes us from the inside out, and we are walking testimonies of his presence and his power. You need to know that power. You need to stop knowing about it. You need to know it. How do we know it? It's when we begin walking in Christ, when God illuminates his word in our life, so we can be changed, so we can live what he called us to. That's what he's called us to. Isn't that great? So, what do we do about it? I got some ideas. I just bring up that last slide because I'm not gonna do it bad, In your in your um, green connection card, I want to pull it out right now. Because the last thing we want to do is go before God's word, come in contact with God's word, and then not have any change in our life from it, right? We want to take steps. We want to do something, invest this truth in our life. So I have some ideas on the back that will help us to do that. The first thing you notice is this week I commit to. I'm going to make some challenges. You can do any of these or none of these, but I'm going to challenge you to do something. And So here's some ideas. The first one is this. Why don't you memorize Ephesians 1, 3? Why don't you start by understanding what God has done for us? Right? When we talk about all of those spiritual blessings in Christ, now you have a framework of what that means. Right? So when you go through life and you're feeling like God is, is somehow giving you the stink eye, or you feel like you're not powerful enough, or God's power is not enough to overcome your circumstances, you feel alone, you're afraid that you're going to mess up so bad God's going to abandon you, know this verse. Let God's word protect you, enable you, empower you to live the life he's called you to live. Memorize this and then think about what it says. That's called meditation. But You, don't have, you, know, you could tell people you meditate, but just think about God's word. Do that this week. Commit to it. In fact, even better, as you memorize it, why don't you get it in context? Why don't you read the first chapter of Ephesians? Get the whole argument. Get the whole thing. In fact, if you want extra credit, read the whole book. It's not long. <laughs> but see what he has to say. We're going to be spending a couple more weeks in that. I tell you what, how about this? This next thing, why don't you commit to, why don't you pray for enlightenment? Maybe one of those things that I've been talking about, one of those gifts that God has given us is something that you might intellectually accept, but you can look in your own life and you're like, I have a hard time owning it. Why don't you pray that God reveals his word not just in your brain, but into your very life? Pray for the enlightenment. We're called children of light for a reason. Let God's word come alive in you. Pray for that. Ask God to do that. You think that God who did all of this wants to, you to hold back and just to know about it? Ask him. Open your life up. Say, God, make this real in me. Maybe that's what you do this week and begin praying that. Another challenge I'm going to have is to attend the next five weeks. Why? You don't want to take God's word out of context. You don't. Ephesians chapter 1 is a great foundation but on its own can lead to dead Christian living. We need the whole the whole counsel of God's word, don't we? Stay with us these next five weeks as we go through God's word and we talk about what does it mean and how does it apply so that way you have the whole counsel and we don't just have a nice foundation that we can build a solid community of grace upon it. We'd love for you to be part of that. So maybe that's what you commit to. Or maybe there's something else. God's Holy Spirit's in here right now working on you and says, you know what, there's something else I want from you. Write it down. Why, as your pastor, I love to pray for you, want to support you. I also want to know what God is doing in our church because the last thing I want to do is have my agenda be done in the church. I want God's agenda, right? So let me know. If God's working in you, write it down. Let me know what you're committing to this week so I can support you with prayer or any other way that you might need. Also, if you have a prayer request, write it down right now. I've seen God, we've seen God do some amazing things, answer prayers, like really cool. Every time he does it, we're like, well, like we're surprised, like He somehow answered, but he does. Let us pray with you. Write that down so we can join you this week. If you have another request, let us know. Maybe right now, you've heard this message and, it's, and you, you know yourself, you've never accepted Jesus as your own personal Lord and Savior. These wealth, this, all these riches aren't yours yet. You need to accept them. And you maybe even know what that means. Well, if that's you over here on this other side, I would like more information about, there's a box, this is starting a relationship with Jesus. This is not a sales pitch. Right? I want you to understand what God has done. So if you check that, make sure that you print your information so I can get a hold of you. And I'll get a hold of you this week and we'll, we'll go have coffee and we'll talk about it. Unless you don't like coffee, we'll have tea. You talk about what God has done. What does it mean to be a Christian? How do you take those steps to follow him? Right? I'll, and once you're ready, I'll help you walk along with you along that path and how to connect in God's place in his kingdom. So if that's you, make sure you let us know. Whatever else your commitments are, write those down. In a couple of seconds, we're going to take our offering. We're going to take our offering. Um, I also want you to take these connection cards and put them in the basket along with your gifts. Um, make this an offering of your spirit to God. And since we're going to take an offering, I think it's appropriate. Let's pray for it. You join me in that. Thank you. Father, thank you for you. Thank you for all the gifts you've given us. How, what can we say? These things that we could never purchase? <laughs> from redemption to forgiveness to our being sealed, being chosen, Father, so many things. I can't even list them all, but to know this, that every spiritual, every spiritual blessings every we've received in Christ. Thank you for sending Jesus. When we were destitute and, and broken, when we had nothing to offer, when we were still your enemies, you loved us enough. You called us to your kingdom and you provided the way and then not only that, you provided us everything we need and not only that, but, Father, then you've called us to great work whilst we're here. Lord, I pray that you're going to be glorified in this. I pray that as our church engages in your word, that your word will engage us and will change us from the inside out. May our church be a community built in grace. And, Father, I pray that you will prepare the Estes Valley for the gospel, that every home and every heart, every person who lives in this mountain valley will know who Jesus is, what he has done, and how they can follow him. Father, give us courage to share your light, that gospel, to those we live around. And Father, I pray that these commitments that we make today won't be just things that we do or boxes to check off, but Father, that, that in obeying you and your will and in, in seeking you, we will find you and we will be changed and we will grow more like Christ in our character and in our hope. So Father, do your work in us, we ask, as we bring you glory. And Father, I pray this too, that uh, the gifts that we bring today would be the same thing. Just an expression of gratitude to you for all the things that you've given us so freely. May they be an investment in your kingdom that will grow your kingdom in the Estes Valley and the hearts of the people here and throughout the world in truth and in love and in light. Father, that, that where there was hopelessness, there will be hope. Where there was death, there will be life. And Father, where, where you were not known, you will be completely known. May you do this, Father, because you are great. We ask in Christ's name.